for April 7th, 2007. For April 7th, 2007. This is episode 8 of Potter Fake Weekly. Potter Fake Weekly. Potter Fake Weekly. This is episode 8 of Potter Fake Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story and the technical misadventures never end. Hey Ron, the next time you're Remember that time that you stole my chocolate cauldrons and declared your love for the middle And welcome back to Father Fick Weekly, everybody. I am Ryan. And I'm Lady Chi. <laughs> Lady Chi. Lady Chi is one of our new guest hosts. She and Mac are going to be filling in when Rena and Jen and myself aren't available, so I want to thank her for uh, joining up with us. Jen has the week off this week. She is visiting relatives in the woods of Arkansas. Uh, Lady Chi, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us where you come from in the fandom and who you are and why you're on the podcast and all that good stuff. Oh, oh God. Um, I gave no warning for that question at all. <laughs> um, that's Okay. Um, I started in the, actually, July is my five-year anniversary of publishing fanfiction, so yay me, in the Harry Potter fandom. I'm a beta author and administrator for phoenixlong.net. Um, I do beta reading, and uh, for timeturn.net, I'm a part-time physician's administrator, so I decide what gets to be on the site and what doesn't. And um, I'm also a long-time reader and a reviewer, and I guess I'm here because the lion and him like me. <laughs> <laughs> She's very active on our forums, and we're like, I know, we can have Lady G do it. so Or Lady Kai, depending on how I'm pronouncing her name this week, apparently. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Kai Opaka. All right. Um, just to let everyone know before we get on with uh, tonight's episode, just some ways that you can contact us if there's anything in this show you'd like to respond to or a comment you'd like to make or just if you want to contact us. Uh, you can email us at either uh, Ryan, Jen, Rena, Mac, or Lady Chi, which is L-A-D-Y-C-H-I. You can email us all at our names at polarficweekly.com. We have a voicemail number, so you can call into the show if you would like and leave a voicemail. That number is 781-352-0643. That's 781-352-0643. And there's a two-minute uh, limit on that voicemail, so if you have a really good point, call back and keep leaving us voicemails until you get it all in. You can also use a program called the Gizmo Project, which I've never really explained. It's a competitor to Skype, I actually like it a lot better. It's a much smaller download for those of you who have a dial-up like Jen. And uh, if you go to our website, potherfickweekly.com, and click on Contact Us, I have a link up to it. You can just call Potherfick Weekly and get into the, uh, the same voicemail box if you have a microphone for your computer. Or you can just email an audio file to staff at polarfickweekly.com and we can uh, get you up on to the show. So we hope to hear from everybody soon. Maybe we'll be very controversial this week and everyone will call in to haze us or something. Maybe it'll be fun. You know, maybe. Yeah. I'm wild and crazy. You might not know what comes out of my mouth. Can I play Jen for a moment? Absolutely. <laughs> I want to encourage everybody to actually listening to join the forums and get to know us better. That's the best way to get to know us better. We're always over there. Um, we have marathon posting sessions, 200 posts in a night. Um, <laughs> Between 1 and 3 in the morning, we're all posting. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, that's the best way to get to know myself and Mac and Ryan and Jenna and Lena, and we're all very active over there. And we'd love to get to know you as well. And that we take your um, comments and, and put them in our little brains and then bring them up in the show a lot. So you'll hear from people who are active over at the forum a lot, like Nate and Jules and uh, myself. I've been voted here too. So, yeah. That was my Jen moment. Ooh, and I was, was going to try and do it in a, in a Texas accent, but I failed. <laughs> you just inspired me. I almost forgot two things. We actually have a voicemail from uh, Jules in our forum that we're going to play in a few moments. And Jenya uh, actually didn't get a chance to send us a voicemail this week, but she did write in some responses to Episode 7, which I have to say, I wasn't there for Episode 7, obviously. So, you know, I was listening to it. You know, just to help edit it. And within a minute, they brought up the fact that I hit Bambi with my car. So now the PETA people are after me. And, you know, halfway through the episode, you know, they're discussing butt sex. Oh, my God. Like, I can't take a week off. Look what they did to my show. So, so, uh, Shania wrote in some, some feedback. So instead of reading the email here, we're just going to put it up on, uh, the forum under the episode seven topic. So go visit there and you can, uh, get some feedback, uh, from Shania. And we're just going to get in a quick voicemail from Jules, and then we're going to get on with this week's episode discussion. Hi, y'all. This is Julie from uh, the forum. And I had a couple of comments, I guess, about episode seven. So I guess the first thing is that uh, Harry and Sirius and their jobs, I, I guess to me, it seems like it's more personal to Sirius. And that's why he's um, he's so into his job, I guess he was the one that was wrongly imprisoned, and so he wants to make sure that no one else has to suffer like he did. I guess to me, it seems like Harry is more, it's kind of more of a general sense of responsibility. And then I wanted to comment about uh, Jen's comment about Harry being angry with Sirius when he came and told him that it's time to go back to the lodge after um, the little dragon dementor episode there. I think the other thing we need to remember is that Harry had just learned about Jeannie, and so at that time, he's really just angry at everything and everyone, and just having, you know, one more person tell him what to do after all that, I think was, would be enough to set him off. And the last thing I wanted to talk about was Hermione as a thinker. I think that thinking seems to be kind of more of a, a intuitive thing, more creative, and I think Hermione's too academic and and she's structured kind of like that. I was trying to, to imagine her outside playing out in the back of the garden and like playing pretend. I, I just can't picture her doing that. I see her carrying a book with her everywhere. And so I think that's part of why she has a hard time. I guess if you contrast it with Jenny, because healing seems to be one of those intuitive, creative things to me too. I don't have any problem at all seeing her outside, you know, pretending she was very princess or something like that. But I just can't picture her mind doing that. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, if Ginny tried to be the thinker and if Hermione tried to be, if Hermione was going to be a healer, if there was, I don't, I still. And uh, sorry, we actually lost Jules um, a bit at the end there. We didn't realize yet that there was a two minute limit on that voicemail. So sorry about that, Jules. Call back. <laughs> uh, I, what do you yeah. think, what do you think about uh, Jules' comment? I, I think she makes a very astute observation. I mean, I can see, um, 
Jenny and just walking out to the middle of the field and plopping down and just, you know, letting her conscious go and just thinking. And Hermione is much too controlled, you know. That, that would be a better logical, uh, you know, yeah, as much as anybody with the hormones of a 19-year-old can be, or a 17-year-old in this case. Yeah. Everything that goes through her mind, it kind of has to go through a checkpoint. Do I want to think this? Do I want to think this? Do I want to think this? Yes, I want to think this, you know. Exactly. So I, I, I think she makes a very astute observation about Hermione's character in general. Well, it's interesting, too, because when you think about Hermione's character in general, it's actually an anomaly that she created Expectora Sacrificum because it wasn't something that was pre-existing. It's something that she literally built from the ground up, and that's a growth for Hermione's character. Hermione's the one who will get every book in the world, find everything that everyone else has already thought of, and organize it and compile it and pull from it what she needs. It's new for her to have to create something, which, you know, I think she only was able to create that spell because Ron inspired it, and, you know, Harry, you know, contributed as well. I think if it was just Hermione in a room with books, I don't think we would have ever had Expecto Sacrificum. Um, I think this is a good development for Hermione. We don't really see Hermione in canon um, being willing to push her borders very often, you know. She gets the divination of a subject that's not very, isn't her forte. And, you know, she quits, and, you know. But granted, if I had a psycho teacher, I would have quit too. But, you know, given that, she wouldn't have been very good at it. I think ultimately that would have been her choice. Yeah. It would be to quit divination. So, um, so it's good for Hermione. She may not be the best choice for the role, but as far as growing as a person, it's a good choice for Hermione. Well, she's really forcing herself into the role, too, and we saw that with the chapters from you know episode 7. This is something that does not yeah. come easily to her. This is something that she has to really, really fight for, whereas I think, you know, Ginny could just, you know, close her mind off and start humming and, you know, meditate all morning. I think that's something that... Her character's, you know, more accustomed to. Hermione's more of a hothead, which is probably why she uh, gets along so well with Ron in this fic. Yeah, well, especially especially fandom Jenny, you know, would be more suited to that now. Like canon Jenny, and I don't know, based on what we've done half of the prints, but canon Jenny up to this point, definitely more so. Okay. And we are going to jump right into uh, chapter 26, which is the very late, really long chapter from Hell which I think is absolutely awesome. Uh, for those of you who don't visit the forums, uh, episode eight, this episode is actually the very late, very long uh, episode from Hell. This is now the third time we're attempting to record this episode. The first time uh, was with Jen and myself, and Jen was in the middle of recording and noticed a tarantula walking across her living room. So that kind of halted the uh, the recording, as you know, you'll hear in the blooper reel to tonight's episode. I have some great footage from that. It's awesome. She, you have no idea. Danielle and I had dinner the other night, and we were just listening to Jen freak out on her, you know, dining room table. It was awful. <laughs> and uh, then we tried to record a couple days after that, and, you know, Jen's in a car driving to, you know, Arkansas, and Renner had interference, and she, I think, where were you? You were in a dorm, like, up on a coffee table trying to get reception on your cell phone. It was... It was, <laughs> it, was it was pretty awful. Oh, it was it terrible. Was pretty awful. I, I had a three-foot radius, and I couldn't move from. <laughs> For like it was the only place I could get, like, two bars. <laughs> for like for like three hours, and I couldn't understand who was talking. Oh, it's terrible! So I completely <laughs> sympathize with Arabella and Genia for just for one of those chapters that just doesn't work. And the minute you're done with it, I love the author's notes. No, we don't know when chapter twenty seven will be posted, and it's just that's how I feel now. We're gonna get this episode out. I don't know when episode nine will be out. Now it'll be out next Saturday, but <laughs> um, you know, I I I have been in this situation as a as an author. I um I actually have a, a fic and I'm gonna try not to talk too much about my writing career, but I, I do have a fic. So that's a 
pretty long epic, all completed. It's going to be 40 chapters. And I had, I had a chapter that took me a year and a half to write. <laughs> so, um, just because nobody was cooperating. None of the characters were cooperating. My real life wasn't cooperating. So I, I, I totally sympathized with uh, the authors in this situation. Well, I'll tell you what, you were, you know, confined to a three foot radius for three hours and we didn't even get to use any of it. So plug your fic. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not gonna give it a title, but, uh, yeah. So. I'll put a link up to within this week's show notes, everybody. Don't worry about it. And, uh, <laughs> so as a beta, were you a little put off by the fact that there's a random J in the middle of the author's notes? Yes, it bothers me. I know, um, I've read this fic 6,000 times, and I know it has, like, 100 bazillion views. That may be slightly exaggerating, but, you know, every time I see it, it's just a little bit of an eye twitch. It's like the one major title of this entire work, you know? <laughs> There's not any. The one just kind of catches your eye and makes you want to stab something. It reminds me of an episode of The West Wing where President Bartlett's reading, you know, the State of the Union on the teleprompter, and he's like, we're spelling discovery with a pound sign in the middle of it now? I don't know. Sometimes stuff just happens. So jumping into the fic, we start off with Fleur and Bill, who I give the uh, distinction of being the second uh, dopiest couple in After the End, in terms of just not recognizing what is clearly in front of them. And for all the things I could talk about about the first half of Chapter 26, and Chapter 26, you know, I completely understand why it's the chapter from hell, because in terms of Ron and Ginny and just all these characters, and it's, you know, the biggest payoff, I think, to date in terms of, you know, explaining some of the stuff that's been hinted at in previous chapters. Just so much to do in this chapter. And the one thing that sticks out in my mind when I think of Chapter 26 is the fact that the goblin's name is Barknap. <laughs> you know... I think I want to argue with you on pronunciation here. Okay. There's no, there's no S there. Break up the, the K and the uh sound. Okay. <laughs> so I, I would really go with Barnap. But that here's, would be how I would say it. But here's the thing. Barknap sounds funnier, and when I look at it, I think Barknap, and I start laughing hysterically, and I just have difficulty moving on with the story. <laughs> All right. You you keep Barknap, and right. I, will, I will keep and <laughs> it just cracks me up. It's like you, you try to picture this, like, you know, little goblin. You picture the goblins from, you know, Philosopher's Stone, the movie, and it's just like, you know, Bill's there and he's pissed off, and Fleur's there and she's pissed off, and, you know, Barknap walks into the room, and, you know, that's it. You know, you're, you're done. But, um, yeah, let's. Everybody's pissed off. <laughs> everyone's done it. But here's the thing it's like, these characters, you just want to reach through the screen and strangle them because in so many chapters of this fic, there is usually one character who's, you know, gone off the wagon, one character who's behaving very emotionally or irrationally, but there's usually one character in there who kind of gets it and kind of is grounded, and sometimes they alternate between who's the messed up one and who's the grounded one, and usually there's enough sanity in relationships to kind of keep everything relatively level, even if there's a lot, you know, of problems going on here. And when you look at Bill and Fleur, he thinks that she is this Vila who is pulling all of his strings, and Charlie, you know, used, you know, the love repellent that was defective, and she's getting through, and he's trying to fight her off. 
And she thinks that he was this perfect guy she met once, had a wonderful moment with, who's turned out to be, you know, this complete ass and just like every other man she's ever met in her life. And neither of these people just see what's in front of them. And they're both so wrong. And they're both missing all of the little hints and all of the little signals that are dropped. They're both completely missing the point. I think um, at a couple of chapters, I'm going to talk very emotionally probably about how the overarching theme of the story is love. And I may be wrong. <laughs> all you need is love. Do, 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 do. Sorry. Do, 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 do. Okay. Um, <laughs> Back on track. Uh, back on track. Love actually go the over- The overarching theme of the story may actually be miscommunication. Because, oh, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not that these characters couldn't understand each other if they just sat down for two seconds. And, well, maybe not two seconds. There's a lot of heavy issues here. But, you know, a couple of minutes and just work things out. Oh, this, this could, yeah, this could easily but, be a five-chapter fic. This could easily be a shot. For all the problems these characters have, they could resolve this in like an afternoon. And I'm picturing this Seinfeld episode I saw once where Jerry's having a fight with his girlfriend and she kicks him out and he realizes there's like a mugger coming down the street. So he bangs in the door and begs her to, you know, to let them work it out. There's one scene where they're screaming at each other and the next scene they're eating macaroni and cheese. The next scene they're watching a movie. The next scene, you know, they're crying hysterically. The next scene, you know, they're hitting each other with pillows. And by the end of the day, they kind of work everything out. You could put all these guys in a room, lock the door, you know, and just have, you know, like have them hit each other with those, you know, those flimsy, you know, swimming pool paddles and everything would work out by dinner. <laughs> Instead, we have like a year of, I hate you. It's just like, come on. Yeah, well, maybe not, not, I, you know, what I think is so great about this particular relationship is they're both so disappointed in each other. Yeah. It's not so much though that Fleur is angry with Bill for not meeting her ideal. She's just disappointed. She's disappointed yeah. in herself, too, kind for kind of, of letting him in, for yeah. believing in him, and obviously being yeah. disappointed. I mean, and this is, I think we've all kind of had a relationship, or, you know, had a fake relationship in our minds <laughs> with somebody, and then we actually meet the person, and we're like, oh my god, <laughs> you're a real prick, you know? <laughs> Forget this. <sighs> Yeah, so, and now she's for, she's forced to work with them, and every day one of them kind of goes out on a limb a little bit to test the waters, and the other one slaps them back, and it's just, that reaffirms all of the, you know, stereotypes they have, and it just, you, you, you just want, literally, you want Barknap to walk up and smack their heads together, kind of like Snape almost does in Goblet the Fire movie, the movie. It, oh my god. Barknap could have saved us so much time and aggravation in the scene. I really think that Barknap let us down. I'm very disappointed in Barknap. Mm-hmm. Me too. Wouldn't that be a great chapter yeah. from Barknap's perspective? Just Barknap, the love counselor, walking around, the, you know, the, the, the Green God's Bank, and just, you know, getting everyone hooked up together, and I don't know. You know, it would, but I don't really think they probably notice much. You know, there would be a lot of, you know, noticing <laughs> things about the bank itself, but I don't really think there would be a whole lot of... Goblins just don't seem to me to be very emotionally astute. It'd be like the most boring chapter ever. Well, it reminds me of Lawrence the butler from Arthur's office. I'm still waiting for the chapter from his perspective. (laughs) Oh my god, I need to take out the trash. I need to, you know, I need to update the schedule. It'd it'd just be the most tedious chapter. You know, we have, in so many of the other chains in this book, it's very dialogue-driven. You know, there's a, you know, a conversation going on between two people or somebody's having a conversation with themselves in in their mind, you know, an inner dialogue. But, um, really, what makes this, this first part of this chapter almost mm, top-heavy as a beta, um, there's just certain passages in here that I'd be going, you know, it's a cute little mini-scene, but 
we don't really need it. <laughs> we could probably cut it out and stop and and try to eliminate some of the weight from this first part of this chapter. Well, it's interesting yeah. too because the way yeah the way you re- when you review fic, I, I like the way that you do it because well you know Rena and Jen and myself tend to talk about you know the characters and you know the the way the story the plot how the plot is developing. You look at basically the way it was written in the behind the scenes stuff, you think of it really as a beta. So I think that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, it, it's kind of how I've trained myself to think, but it just gets trouble sometimes. You fix that people really like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm sorry. Just out of curiosity, uh, does that make reading a fic more difficult for you? Cause you think of it as a beta and not as, you know, just a Harry Potter fan. You know, I don't really know. Because, well, I did like fan fiction a lot more when I was younger. <laughs> um, I think I like I like the fics that I made a read. But, um, and I do like some of the fics that are being posted now. But I've gotten to the point where, honest to God, I'm so, I'm so elitist that <laughs> um, some of the fics that, that people get really excited about, there's just so many things that just aren't quite right about the writing that I can't really enjoy all that well. But a lot of my, the people that I spend a lot of time with are that way. Y'all are kind of a breath of fresh air. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Like, yeah. Well, the reason I ask, (laughs) the reason I ask is I'm a huge fan of Battlestar Galactica, you know, the the new series. And if you are too, email Ryan at potherfickweekly.com. I really want to talk to someone about it. Um, And the, uh, executive producer of the show, Ron Moore, puts out the podcast every week where he does a commentary of that week's episode and he talks about the series. And someone in, uh, they did that, they just wrapped this season up and uh, huge cliffhanger. It's not going to be on again until January and all the fans are, you know, climbing the walls already. And uh, someone asked him, you know, what other TV shows do you watch? And he said, I have real difficulty watching shows, you know, like Galactic, like hour-long you know, dramas, because when I'm watching it, I always think to myself, okay, that was interesting. You know, how many sets are they using in this episode? That that looks like the set from before. And, oh, here's the Act 2 break. Oh, that was interesting how they ended Because he thinks of it as, you know, an editor, as an executive producer, and it really takes him out of the, uh, takes him out of the story, because he's, he's the behind-the-scenes guy. So he has trouble, you know, accepting, you know, the, the reality that, you know, the, the other producers trying to put forward. Well, it's not that I can't enjoy fan fiction. It just has to be extremely well written. You know, it has to be at least a couple of times better than I am at writing. So I can still read like Melinda Leo's stuff. I'm reading one fic that I'm kind of going, oh my god, can't believe I'm still reading this. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is so out of my realm of normal things. And no, Jen, it's not a year like none other. <laughs> but. I mean, it's like asking the founders of Phoenix on Dynet if they can go to other websites. Yeah. Well, we can, but... We don't want to. We're going to be spending most of our time going, mm, I wonder how they go to that, you know? Yeah. It's just a different set. So, before we even go any further, what are your thoughts on After the End so far, up until this chapter? I wrote this thing when I was like, mm, 14, 15, 16, right when I was publishing my first novel length and really starting to get involved in fandom politics and all this stuff. I, I can't really do too much critique on it because it was such an ideal of mine, of my baby author stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my the time when I was writing. But um you'll notice and I this didn't hit me until I read this book again for the podcast. It's very much a three act Shakespearean play. First act is like 
Well, I mean, if you knock off the prologue, because Shakespeare wouldn't have done that. But, like, you go from the first chapter to about when Malfoy starts pressing charges, not that one. Mm-hmm. And then Hermione is at the, the island, you know, and we're kind of at the climax of Act 2. I do actually think that, yeah, that's something I was saying, too. That these scenes, Chapter 27, it's actually in my notes, Chapter 27 and 27 and three quarters, that seems like, you know, kind of the respite before we get into the final act of of, of the story. So I do actually uh, I do actually agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's very much, I mean, they structure it very much like you would structure a three-act drama. And, um, you know, and that can be, that kind of is a double-edged sword. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how... Sometimes the pacing is a little grating. Like, it's so, it gets so heavy in points. Yeah. And you're just like, oh my god. You know, and then they do eventually bring in comic relief, but sometimes I wish it was like a scene or two earlier. And that's just editing stuff. It's, it's just an opinion. Well, it's it was actually funny because Jenya uh, called in a few episodes ago and she mentioned that reading through it again or thinking back to the, to after the end again, she was shocked how it seemed like you know, the lost TV series, how every chapter something terrible is happening because they wrote it over such a long period of time that when you sit down, you just read it, you know, in one sitting, you're like, oh my God, every week something traumatic happens to these characters, you know. Ron has foot fungus this week, you know, the next week, you know, something terrible, you know, the house yeah, catches yeah. on fire. It's like every, it's, it's like a TV show. It's like every week something awful happens to these poor people. But um, oh, yeah. two things I forgot to mention too, um, you mentioned Melinda Leo. We're actually going to, um, after we conclude after the end and uh, the interview with uh, Arabella and Jenya, we're going to move on to uh, a Melinda Leo fic, The Seventh Horcrux, because I really want to get in a post- Half-Blood Prince fic before it becomes Alternate Universe. So we're going to be going to that fic next. Uh, for our third fic, which we're probably going to get to in late summer after Deathly Hallows is released, uh, we have a poll up on potterficweekly.com on the forum. Uh, we have some fics up there that we're um, interested in, and we're going to let the listeners vote for what they want us to discuss next. So if you're listening to this and you're kind of curious, just go to the forum and uh, vote for our third fic. So I just wanted to get that out there before I forgot. All right. Don't you just like love some of the little snappy interactions between Bill and Fleur? I really do. You know, he's trying to light all the torches in the hallway and she's like, why did you do that? And he's like, all right, I guess I'll just put them out. And she's like, well, why did you do that? (laughs) And she's so pissed because she has to put them all back on again exactly the same way. (laughs) She can't one up him, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Just a base. <laughs> One thing that really jumps out at me, and you know, we were just uh, mentioning a while ago, you know, the way this is written, it's not really dialogue driven, which actually to me makes sense because these characters don't really want to talk to each other. So it, you know, it'd be a very short uh, part of the chapter if it wasn't, you know, so heavy on the uh, on the narration. One thing that really jumps out at me is that Bill is under the impression that Fleur is using her Vila superpowers on him and that she is trying to seduce him and he is fighting her off, you know, tooth and nail. And it's interesting because you get it from the narration. It's never explicitly stated from either of their perspectives. But I really get the sense reading this that she is turning all of her Vila powers off. She is, you know, just being herself. She's being completely open to him. And he is obviously uh, very attracted to her when she does that. And I get the sense that as soon as she gets defensive, and I like the way they use her, uh, her accent is kind of like a barometer for this. When she's very defensive, mm-hmm. she speaks, uh, you know, like anyone else in London, you know, with a British accent. And when she gets very, uh, 
you know, closed off. And when she's you know, trying to fight him off and she's on the defense, she, you know, snaps back to her very thick French accent. And the only times he's turned off by her, the only times he is not attracted to her and is almost, I'm, I'm going to use the word, I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but almost disgusted by her is when she turns on the Vila powers. And that's mm-hmm. when the love repellent actually works. And yeah. I just think that's great. It's, he is completely, I love the fact that she's open to him and you get that sense just from knowing that he, he there is a love repellent and, you know, he's genuinely attracted to her and it beats the love repellent. But when she tries to use, you know, her, her, you know, Vila powers on him, she sees it, you know, she comes across as cold and, you know, completely unattractive to him. I just think that's such a great contrast. I do too. I do too. I think it makes a good point too about Bill's character in general. And, you know, all the Weasley boys, really. Uh, and we're, we're probably going to talk about... <laughs> I know um, they had last episode had talked about how all these Weasley boys getting all these amazing women, you know? <laughs> and I think um, part of that is just there is something about a guy that can see past your BS, you know? And he, he doesn't realize that he can yet, but once he figures that out... <laughs> He's going to be a really good guy for Fleur. But he's the second dopiest character in the fix, so fortunately he, he's not that far yet. I just want to talk about the, the line he makes to, you know, to Fleur about Ron. Now picture Ron back in Goblet of Fire. He's, you know, the, he's the, you know, probably voice changing, you know, 14 year old kid who asks Fleur Delacour out on a date. And now he's, you know, the very handsome, you know, very famous Ron Weasley. And I just love the fact mm-hmm. that Bill, the older brother, the ladies man, Bill looks at Fleur Delacour and says, just so you know, my brother's taken. He's threatened by Ron of all people. And it's just like, she's actually interested in Ron. Like, it's just like, what the heck? Like, are you just trying to make small talk? Like, what? like it just, <laughs> you must be. Oh my God. It's like, oh my. No, I, it's nice to see that his brothers have respect for him now. And that's a very funny manifestation of it, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like I just said, he's the famous Ron Weasley, and he's never the famous Ron Weasley. He's, you know, the guy who holds Harry Potter's coat, you know, in the canon, and now he's someone who's come into his own. I just thought that was such a great dynamic. Yeah, and may I say, that with all sincerity, I really hope Ron hits his stride in Deathly Hollows. I really, I'm hoping for big things from Ron. I'm sorry, was that Deathly Hollows or Deathly Hallows? I think he said Hollows. I said, did I say hollows? Okay, see, I'm from the middle of the country, so oh. I really concentrate. Hallows. All right, just double checking. <laughs> don't usually make that sound. Well, no, it's really uh, funny. I was listening to, um, I, I usually listen to MuggleCast and PotherCast, and since we started doing this show, I've not really had time, but I did listen to the, uh, to the PotherCast, um, uh, cover art edition with Melissa and Sue the other day. And I love the fact that they're looking at the British edition and they're like, oh my God, that's Rupert Grint, because Ron has the very scared expression as he falls into what I think is the Gringotts vault. And I'm like, oh my God, please do not let him be, you know, the crybaby in this book. There's one book left. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm hoping for big things from Ron. I really am. You know, because I kind of think, you know, maybe JKR just doesn't have time, but I just see how he gets short shafted a lot. Okay, we need to focus. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to a seven hour edition of Perfect Weekly. I'm Ryan. Um, yeah, and just, okay. You know, so- we said this was going to go so much faster because it was just two of us. Um, <laughs> how was your day? All right, so. Uh- <laughs> 
moving on a little bit here. So you have, you know, Bill and Fleur just not able to in any way connect to each other. And they're really the type of people that when they're angry at each other, they really try and, you know, poke at the other one and really try and set them off. And I love that moment at the end when Bill, you know, finds out that Fleur is leaving after, you know, her task is complete, you know, her time at Green Gods is up, and he's shell-shocked, because he was really pissed at her, but he always thought there would be more time. And now he knows she's leaving, yeah. and, you know, as angry as I am at this person for using her superpowers on me, I don't want you to go yet. And you actually see Bill come around when he finds that out, and you see him honestly act like a real person, and I love the descriptions, too. How did she operate out of the hallway? But as it turns out, she's just walking out of the hallway, and, you know, she's just so graceful that he doesn't even realize it. And it's just such a... Yeah. I just love the imagery that they use there. You know, and then, if I can, I want to move on to the end with Bill and Nick, because I really want to talk about the dialogue at the end. Go for it. Um, I think Nick get some of the best dialogue in After the End. It's just so funny. I can totally, I mean, I don't know if Mick is supposed to be Irish, but in my mind, <laughs> Mick is Irish. That may be, like, racist of me, I don't know. But um, <laughs> I don't think you know, it does, but whatever. <laughs> um, you know, and he's, um, you know, there Bill's brought him all these books, which is such a Hermione thing to do, isn't it? He's yeah. brought him all these books on Vila's. And Vic laughs at him, you know, and um, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't know why Vic knows so much about Vila's. But, um... Well, Mick is Mick a species is, expert, correct? Mick is a species expert. That's right. he, yeah. That's true. Um, but I love just the one line. You know, Bill goes, what's the difference between a full-blooded Vila and one that's one quarter. And Nick's just like, whoo, huge, gaping, carnivorous. <laughs> <laughs> I was in, he's like, and Bill's like, oh my God. And he's like, mm, don't have time right now. I've got to go. <laughs> yeah, I have a tape with Secretary Privy, Rose yeah. Gay Brown. But, and I just, I, I want to comment on this too. Um, in some effects, and, and you can discuss this much better than I could, you know, I think OCs are very difficult. You know, you can have the Mary Sue or the Gary Stew, or I guess whatever they call them, the male OCs. And, you know, they can usually be written as, you know, the, um, oh, it's the, like the deus maxima, you know, the character who comes in on nowhere and solves all the problems. And I just think that the two OCs that we really see in this, in this fic, in addition to all of the, you know, canon characters that we never get to see developed in the actual novels, you know, you have Mick and Secretary Brown, and I love their characters so much, and it's hard for me to realize that Joe Rowling never created them. It just seems like they fit mm-hmm. so well, because it's, you know, the girl that you went to school with who, you know, is very prim and proper, but, you know, has a wild side, and it's the guy that, you know, your older brother knew who, you know, could go to bars every night and, you know, make everybody in the room laugh. And it's just, they're so real because everybody knows a Rose and everybody knows a Mick. And it's just, it's like seeing your, your, your buddies in this fic. It's just, uh, I just enjoy those characters both so tremendously. And one thing I just do want to say before I forget, yeah, Bill, whose brother Ron, you know, who's always been, you know, the little kid who, you know, he always feels like he has to mold and guide through life, you know, has a steady relationship as this, you know, it has his life coming together and, you know, he's, you know, one upping Bill and he thinks that Fleur has the thing for Ron and he goes to, you know, <laughs> Flourish and Bots and cleans out their Vila section and, you know, the, 
the the clerk at the counter even has a thing for Ron. I just love that too. It's like he tries to, you know, just concentrate on his own problems, but you know, people are like, Oh, do you know Ron? Oh god, not another one. I just thought that was so great. It's like he can't get away from it. Yeah, it, it never rains, but of course, kind of that thing. But, um, I, I do kind of want to talk briefly, just a little bit about original characters, because I, I know when you asked me to be on the show, you did make mention that I am an author, and I kind of have a unique perspective on this, so I'll just kind of run with that platform for just a second. Go for it. I think, you know, when you're writing an original character, first of all, it is so much fun, because... I mean, no matter how much you try, every one of your characters has just a little bit of you inside of them, you know? Yeah. When we run into trouble is when it is you (laughs) running around inside the Harry Potter world. Um, Or, I mean, and it doesn't have to be an original character. It can be, I've seen Super Hermione Fix, and I've seen, you know, Super Ron and Super Harry Fix, and, you know, when they're all running around sleeping with half of London, and, um, you know, it's just kind of, whatever, you know, um, but the nice thing about these original characters is, one, you'll note that they could have known each other before the war, because they're connected somehow to somebody else, yeah. you know, like, Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown is related to somebody that went to school with Harry. Right. And, you know, Mick went to school with Charlie, and it's just like, Oh, oh Mick, oh, just stop okay. you, Mick, Mick is Seamus' cousin, so he is Irish. See, I'm on top of things. Right on top know? of this lady sheet. This is wonderful for, you know, what time? It's 11.15 in the morning where I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, actually 10.15 in the morning for me. And I don't okay. normally get up before 1 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturdays. This is special. <laughs> um, I'm very touched. You should be. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's just the, the original characters in here are just so much fun because they're so natural. You know, and I think it was kind of the trick is that you have to make the original characters so natural that they can fit into the natural scenery of the world. You know, they have to exist there. They have to live there and breathe there. And I think that's, you know, you can't take, and I've seen this and it irritates me every time with my, with my beta E's, I get lectures on this. They'll take somebody that they're writing an original story about and they'll plop them into the Harry Potter world. And it's like, I mean, you just can't do that because, there's a very definite texture to this yeah. world, you know, and it, I mean, it would be like trying to patch polyester with cotton. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, and, there's you can uh, do homages, and I think homages are a little different. Like, we know that, you know, uh, yeah. some of the characters from Pride and Prejudice, you know, write serious letters, and, you know, the Victor Crumb, you know, character in this fic is actually from uh, one of Eugenia's friends' fic, and they kind of lift the actual character from the fic and, you know, place him into this right. after the Emerald. There's ways to do it, but, yeah, you can't have, you know, like, George Bush and, you know, walk around, you know, Hogwarts. I mean, there's... there's Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, now that we've talked about that scene for an hour... I think we're doing very well so far. We're doing very well. Yeah, let's move on to the heart of this chapter. Uh, and I suspect this is what kept A and Z at their computers for a long period of time, making sure they got right. One of the s- strengths of After the End is that it builds very slowly. You know, we're at chapter 26, and... Bill and Fleur still haven't, you know, resolved what I could probably resolve with my girlfriend in 10 minutes. I mean, it's just that everything is happening at a very, at very much a snail's pace. And you have been getting hints all throughout this fic that something happened to Ron in seventh year. You know that he was kidnapped. You know that he was injured. 
no one discusses it. And it's kind of like with Hermione when she's talking to Delia and or Delia or however we're pronounced. You ever notice this one person we cannot pronounce their name in every episode? It was it was Jennier for a while. Now it's we're, we're going to call her D. Okay, D the D the thinker. All right. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the things you realize, you know, with Hermione is that she has never really discussed what happened with her parents to Ron. Obviously, he's been there all the time, and he's very familiar with what happened, but they don't discuss it because he already knows it. And it takes, you know, Delia, you know, to sit there and put her hand on Hermione's shoulder and let Hermione cry for an hour before, you know, all of that pain can be tapped out or at least extinguished for a brief period of time. And it's something that both of these characters do. Everyone who was there knows what happened to Ron, but they never talk about it. So it sits and it's, you know, just such a pain and such a, you know, you know, such a guilty weight just resting on him. And I love the fact that, you know, Ginny as the healer can see that. And Ginny as the sister wants to help. And I just think it's such a great dynamic. Uh, Two things quickly, just before we get to that Uh, Remus, I think Jules or someone in the forum is discussing this. They think that Remus comes across as very, authoritarian when it comes to Ginny. He comes across as far too restrictive. I don't really know about that. I think that he knows that Ginny is one in a million. She's going through something that nobody else has gone through. And he he's really making a strong effort to separate her from Harry because she knows her tendency is to rush to him. And he knows that he will fail much of the time and he will, you know, not be able to keep Ginny away from him. So if he overcompensates, maybe he can help a little bit more. I don't get the sense that he's being, you know, a prick about it. I don't get the sense that he, you know, is, you know, gleeful to keep them apart. But I think he knows that he has to do everything he can because Ginny is such a strong-willed person that she will find a way to get to Harry unless Remus really shuts the door on that. You know, I think that um, the mistake people are making now is that we are so used to half the Prince order the Phoenix Remus, you know? Um, who's much different than uh, Prisoner of Azkaban Ramus. And I noticed this when I went back and I reread it this week. See, I'm just doing a lot of reading <laughs> and note-taking. I mean, he's not a benevolent uncle. You know, he's not this adorable half of the odd couple that's serious. He's very much a flawed character. You know, he's been... Um, I mean, think about... Just take for a moment and think what this character has been through. Okay? He's been a werewolf his entire life, from his childhood up through his adulthood. He lost all of his friends, all of his friends in the first war. And, you know, and then Sirius suddenly reappears. And, you know, they're trying to build this whatever they have, friendship, love relationship, whatever, and after the end. But Sirius is also trying to move on, too. But, so, Ramus... I mean, we have, like, a 13-year period where we're not really sure where Ramus was, or what Ramus was doing. Yeah. You know? And um, I, I just think, you know, it, it's attempting to make Ramus into a nicer person than Ramus actually is. I mean, he's not mean. He just has a lot of defenses and layers because he has to. He's a teacher, you know, and he's trying to put distance, again, between him and Jenny. Well, what's interesting when you yeah. stop to think about this particular fic, and I, w- I really want to focus focus this on after the end, Remus, and you, you made a great point that we don't know where he was for those 13 years. We know he feels guilty for not being more proactive in Harry's life, but we don't actually know where he was. I assume he was, you know, at the Lupin Lodge, maybe with his late with his late parents before they died, or, you know, we really don't get a right. sense of that. Um, 
the thing about this fic, which is one of the reasons I am so attracted to it, is because it switches because there are so many characters that are so deeply developed and because it switches back and forth between everyone's perspectives, you know, it's such a long novel length fic, we get to see, you know, everything from everyone's perspective. You know, from Harry's perspective, from Ginny's perspective, Remus is actually the character from the odd couple. He is very calm. He's like calm, almost like masterpiece theater Remus. You know, he sits in the leather bound chair and yeah. he, and he spouts words of wisdom and he's the one that could, you know, get Molly Weasley yeah. to let, you know, Jenny stay at the, at the Lupin Lodge for a year or when Sirius is going, you know, completely insane. The Harry's been missing for two days. Remus is the one who calmly steps in the room and says, Harry, it's good to see you. Do you need anything to eat? He's the very, you know, down to earth, direct one. And then we switch perspectives and he is terrified that people will see him as the wolf. And he is, you know, humiliated by what he has become. And that's the thing. I think that because so many characters see him as masterpiece theater, Remus, we, as the reader kind of let that stick in our heads. And we actually think that's who he really is. And it's important to remember that's what Harry thinks he is. And that's what Ginny thinks he is at times. But we're, we're looking at this, Remus through Ginny's lens. And if we saw it through Remus's lens, he would be a much different character. Much different. Right. Yeah. But the scene starts out, like you said, Remus basically strict with Ginny, and Sirius and Mom are working on their caseload in the other room. And this is some of my... I mean, I keep saying I love the dialogue, but it's so funny. It's almost like you could watch this thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're not really reading it so much as you're watching a movie. Because I like that a lot, yeah. The dialogue is so natural. That's know? actually, I really like that because, yeah, in my mind, I, and I've said this before, this fic is movie love, actually. Yeah. And, and and that's actually how I think of it. It's 15 different relationships, and everyone knows everybody else, and, you know, you find out, you know, not to spoil the movie for anyone, but, you know, you find out in chapter 30 that Emma Thompson is the, the Prime Minister's sister, and it's kind of like this fic. You find out in chapter 26, you know, what happened to Ron that was hinted at back in chapter 2. I mean, it's, it, there, there's many similarities between that. This actually does feel like a movie to me, just in the in the use of foreshadowing and a lot of the other literary devices that um, ANZ uh, use. One thing just to say, because um, before we jump into the heart of this chapter, I love the point where Ginny pleads with Remus to let her work with, with someone. Ginny is desperate. She needs to be like Hermione and do in, you know, four months, which should otherwise take six. And she needs to really get in there and learn how to control her abilities and to build up her tolerance because she needs to be with Harry. And <laughs> Remus says, you need to work with someone very simple. And Ginny, without even breaking eye contact, screams, Ron! And, and it's just, poor Ron. Like, it's like, I'm, like in the early part of the chapter, he's the ladies' man who was dating Vila. And now he's like, you know, the simpleton who, you know, can't, who's trying to shove, you know, the square, you know, building block into the round hole. It's just depending on whose perspective. You know, um, I, I, I kind of get frustrated with Jenny from time to time. I have to, I have to go, in my mind, I have to spend a lot of time going, 16-year-old girl. 16-year-old girl, you know, because her tunnel vision really starts to annoy me after a certain point, you know? it's She's supposed to be a healer. She's supposed to be observing all these things about all these people that normal people don't see. And I don't really think she's ready to be around Harry yet because all she can do is focus on Harry. I think the sign of a healthy healer would be somebody who would, he would say you need to work on somebody simple and her first thought would not be Ron, you know? Because Ron may appear simple, but a lot of stuff has happened to Ron. Yeah. You know, 
she would be better off to be working with, like, Leo. Nothing's traumatic except for birth has happened to Leo yet. I don't think you Leo know? can really build her tolerance up, though. I think that Leo is calming. Leo is almost kind of like the mint that Remus right. takes after he, you know, consumes the Wolfsbane potion. I think that, um, Leo is therapeutic, but Leo doesn't get her where she needs to go. She needs to, it's kind of like when you're, you know, running track, you know, if, if, you know, doing this to your leg hurts, keep doing that and, you know, until it feels yeah. better and then do it a little bit more until it starts hurting again. You really need to build up, you know, your muscles and build up that tolerance. One thing about Ron is that, you know, and it's kind of, you know, almost the same with Hermione. Ron is extreme. He eats more than anybody. He yells more than anybody. Mm-hmm. He loves more than anybody. Ron, everything Ron does, Ron does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you need something like, you know, Ron, he is overprotective. Ron, like, like, go down the list. Whatever Ron does, he does it very simply. Ron is not nuanced. You know, Ron yeah. is the person who, you know, if you insult his girlfriend, he will do his best to, you know, pound you into the ground. And I just, that was kind of the impression I got. I need, you know, if I need, you know, solid anger or solid love or just, you know, very simple emotions, Ron will be able to do that. Uh, maybe I'm just really breathing too much into that. Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of get angry because, you know, all right, Ron tends to be a more complicated character than he is in After the End. So I kind of have to remind myself every once in a while, oh, yeah, you know, but he is very, I mean, extreme doesn't necessarily mean simple. That's I think, a good point. I, I think, you know, to a certain degree, Hermione is extreme, you know? I think she is. Um, to a certain degree, well, to a lot of degrees, Harry is very extreme, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially fifteen-year-old Harry, you know. Oh, yeah. I would have. I would have shot Harry in <laughs> Order of the Phoenix. I wouldn't have put up with it. That's actually you know? frightening because Jen Jen tried to jump kick him across the football field. So it's nice to know you just take out the gun and just shoot him dead in the street. So that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> violent. Uh, no wonder people think Americans have issues. All right, we're a very but, angry group. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I just think. I, while I, I understand what she wants to work on, you know, I, I try to say how I get frustrated with her because, you know, the goal shouldn't be how do I get to how I can be around Harry. It should be how do I get to I, where I can be helping people on a regular basis. And I think that's kind of what, that's one of her motivations, but it's not her first motivation. And that's yeah. what kind of, uh, it's kind of, uh, about her, you know, and I, you have to remind yourself, oh, yeah, these people have been through a lot, but they're still 16. Yeah. You know, it takes a little bit for me to go, oh, yeah. Well, let's get into the actual discussion of what happens, you know, in the latter half of the chapter, because maybe that changes Jenny's perspective as well. You have them go to, you know, uh, to the notch, and Jenny is starting to tell Ron who she is. And I love that this is the first time she's been able to tell on her own terms that she, someone that she's a healer, you know, Remus figured that out. Remus told Sirius, um, you know, Harry found out because, you know, she collapsed. So this is her first chance to, you know, break the news. And it's something where, you know, Ron misinterprets it. He at first thinks that she wants to become a meta wizard. And I love how his first reaction is, Oh, you can work in the Quidditch field. And, uh, you know, <laughs> she says, Ron focus. And, you know, she, you know, let's, him know, you know, exactly what she is. And I love how he's blown away by that. And a little bit of character growth for Ron. I think if, 
you know, he had found this out, you know, a few chapters back, you know, you would have seen a much more jealous Ron because he didn't know who he was yet, really. This is before Hermione left. This is when he's the bartender and she's making Wolfsbane potion. If he found out that, you know, his, in addition to everything else, his sister is the only, you know, possibly the whole, the only, you know, healer in the world, you know, and he's tending bar down at the pub, I think he would have gotten very defensive or very depressed about that. I think that it shows a lot about his character growth, that he is impressed and he is proud and he's a little concerned and a little confused because he knows what, he remembers what happened to the I, I love that too he because Hermione makes him study so much he remembers from history of magic uh, what happened to the to the old you know healers of you know the Grindelwald days and um yeah. so we start to get into um his aura and it's you know and I love how in the Harry Potter universe they get to create these literary devices that really let us analyze the humanity in these characters. You have the Boggart, which shows you everyone's worst fear. You have the Dementor that shows you everyone's worst memory. You have the Patronus, which, you know, shows you, you know, what everyone loves the most. You go down the line and there's all, you know, you have the Mirror of Eriset, which shows you everyone's greatest desire. There's, you know, these physical things that let you look inside these characters, you know, and really, as an author, let the audience know what they're all about. And now you have, you know, the healer, which lets you visualize, you know, the, the, the character's emotional center, I'll call it for lack of a better term. And Ron is just extreme. He's loud. He's enormous. He is not doing anything small. And I love the fact that that, because that really defines the character, as we were just saying. And yeah. there's something wrong. You know, there's the injury to his head. There's, you know, non-physical scars that were left from what happened in the seventh year. And that really pushes Ginny to ask him, you know, what happened? You need to let this go. And she's not sure she can handle it. And he doesn't want to talk about it with anybody. And I like that we don't know where Ginny's even though this is from her her perspective, we don't know where Ginny's coming from in this. Is she coming from, you know, Ginny the healer? Is she coming from Ginny the sister? She needs Ron to get this out for whatever reason. And I just, I think that's great setup for, for what we're about to learn about him. You know, there's a lot here to talk about in general. I notice there's a lot to talk about temperature. That's interesting. Because it's a very physical manifestation of something that is not physical. And you're talking about, you know, literature, literary devices in the Harry Potter world. And it's a great playground to use because we have so many yeah. physical manifestations of things that are inherently non and they are, are playing with more subtle things here, you know. I like how they use little things to let you, the reader, know what is going on. You know, there doesn't have to be a whole lot of, you know, there was a lot of energy in Ron's forehead, so Jenny nodded it out. You know, there's not a whole lot of that yeah. monotonic um, literation. There's very much, you know, very few adjectives, very simple phrasing, but perfect. Because we don't need to know any more than what they're telling us. Yeah, thank you. That's Because that's my real, that's, I don't mean to interrupt, that's really what 
I love so much about this fic, and I talked about this, you know, back in the chapter where we learned the Dumbledore died. I thought that chapter was heavy-handed because what this fic does so well is very simple words, very simple ideas. It conveys so much more than if you sat there for forty-five minutes and explained you know, everything that's happening in the scene. Because I actually enjoy, as a reader, you know, you're coming at this from the beta. I'm coming at this from the reader. I, as a reader, enjoy not really knowing what's happening and trying to figure it out. Like I remember in the uh, in the prologue, we, no one was introduced. You know, we knew it was wrong because someone in the room was hungry. We knew it was Hermione because someone was chiding the hungry guy. And I, I like that as a reader because I really like to have to work at it. I like it to be, you know, an exercise for me to try and sort out what the author, you know, is putting before me as a puzzle almost. So I, I do enjoy that. And I love finding, you know, the little quote unquote Easter eggs in the scene. I like finding you know, that the temperature is changing or that, you know, Bill, you know, you know is not finding Fleur attractive at this moment. Why? What's she doing? It, 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 it's such a great exercise, you know, as a reader. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I like the use of temperature because like, sometimes you get cut or something and it throbs a little bit. That's kind of what I was thinking with the temperature thing. You know, they didn't have to tell me that. That's just kind of where my mind went. All I had to mention was that they weren't really hot, but they were there. You know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily, it's kind of insulting to my intelligence when you tell me too much of what's going on in yeah. the scene. I should be able to fill in the blanks myself. Right. No, I absolutely I'm very, I'm very minimalistic. <laughs> no, I absolutely do. And that's one of the reasons, like, some of the TV shows I watch, like I mentioned before, Battlestar Galactica, you know, or the, this great sci-fi show called Babylon 5. I like the fact that many authors don't treat you like morons. They know that you're smart enough to figure things out. And that's one of the reasons I like fanfic so much. And I like fan films so much, you know, I'm big into Star Trek fan films and stuff like that because, you know, sometimes the suits, you know, with the networks want you to really dumb things down and sex things up and, you know, you know, have people walk around spouting, you know, this pointless exposition because you as the viewer are too stupid to figure out what's happening. I just, I really appreciate people who, understand the fact that I can balance my own checkbook and figure out what's going on in this scene. Yeah, exactly. I want to get back to the narration here and the actual story. Oh, there's a story uh, where we're, we're talking about a story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know what I find interesting is we don't really know that much about the Lestranges from Glove on Fire. Oh, we know nothing. We have yeah. Nate. Yeah. And they just kind of pull them out of nowhere, you know? And they're, they're terrifying characters. And you know, I mean... Just absolutely the epitome of what a Death Eater should be. Yeah. You know, a perfect villain, I, I think. You know, and we only get to see them, quote unquote, see them um, for just a little bit. But some the things that they do make you nauseous. You know, and it wasn't necessarily that they're villains and, you know, we're sitting down and going, you know, how do we want to make this so that the readers understand how much pain Ron went through. They don't really have to do that. We can do that in our heads, but they give us little things like Bellatrix was flirting with him. You know? Yeah, and you can and picture you, you can picture like this oily haired you know, disgusting woman, like, licking his ear and just, like, you know, it makes you cringe. And when I think of the Lestranges and After the End, it's very apparent to me that this is pre-Order of the Phoenix, just by the way they're introduced. It's not Bellatrix. I don't even know if you know her name at this point. It's Mrs. Lestrange, and it's Mr. Lestrange, who you never see in the in the canon. It's always mm-hmm. Bellatrix. And you, you, you really, that brings you out of the story a little bit and reminds you that, you know, this is pre-Order of the Phoenix. This is, you know, the direction that A and Z went with what they had. You know, it, could, it would have been terrible if it was, like, you know, Ruth Lestrange or something like that like you know um it's always mrs lestrange but 
that's actually a very interesting point that, you know, the, you know, the oily, greasy, disgusting character that, you know, makes you want to go and shower when you, when you read about her, that's actually canon Bellatrix. And I think they do a really, really good job of from, you know, just from the limited information they had, the fact that they went mad in Azkaban and they tortured um, the long bottoms, just from the limited information we have on them, really and able to channel, you know, what this character became. This isn't a case, you know, where they made, you know, Madungus Fletcher, the head of magical law enforcement. They really got this one right. You know, I think I, when I was going back to read Chamber of Secrets for my read for where I get to Deathly Hallows, I went back and one of the things that really struck me that I think I missed when I read it the first, you know, 200 times was <laughs> that long relationship with Scabbers. I mean, and how... I I, I, belo- I love how they bring the betrayal back. Yeah. You know, how I think, Ron, that sense of betrayal, we don't really... I mean, it's kind of mentioned a little bit in Chamber of Secrets, but you kind of want a little bit more, you know? But there's not a whole lot of time in actual canon to talk about emotions. But, you know, how disturbing would that be? Like, I thought, oh, my God, if my cat O'Malley was actually an Animagus... <laughs> <laughs> and he was a Death Eater. And he went after me. He would have so much on me. He would be able, you know, to just tell everybody everything in the world about me. You know, and... I let you sleep in my bed. It's like, <laughs> it's the betrayal. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, I, I like how they bring this very personal betrayal back to the forefront of the reader. It's out of my consciousness, unless somebody brings it up. Unless I'm needing it as a device. I don't really think too much about it. Yeah. The relationship between Scabbers and Ron, but they bring them back. That's a good point because you, you all you usually think about it as you know plot device that you know you, you know the Death Eater was the rat, but you never think of the fact that the rat had relationships with people. <laughs> so that's actually a good point. It's something that you as the reader tend to gloss over. So it's I did enjoy too that they brought that up. And you know let's look at you know Ron begins to relax. Ron begins to talk to Jenny. I like the fact that you know they kind of explain away some of the inconsistencies in the story by really, you know, hitting home with the themes of the canon. You know, there was a, I was watching with Danielle an episode of Frasier last night. It was an episode where Sam from Cheers comes on and meets, you know, Frasier's dad. And they made this reference to the fact that, oh, I thought your father was a research scientist who died because there was an episode of Cheers where the Frasier character says that. So now, of course, you know, they create this spinoff show and they, they had to change the backstory. So they had to acknowledge it somehow. So what they said was Frasier was having a really bad day that day and he just pretended his father was dead. And, you know, if my father was dead, you know, why not make him a research scientist? You're dead anyway. What's it matter? And I like the fact that, you know, there's some plot holes in, in the story they came up with. You know, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, they figure out that there could be potentially death eaters by, you know, the Whomping Willow. They know, you know, it's a passageway into the school and it takes them hours to do anything about it. And they don't go to McGonagall. And Jenny even says, why don't you go to McGonagall and tell her? Well, we never went to Dumbledore. Why would we? I just love the fact that they acknowledge that. Like, why would we tell someone that something awful's happening? We can just go ourselves. I mean, we've we've never gone to, you know, the school administration before. <laughs> like I just thought that was such a great nod to Canon because it makes sense in its stupidity, but it it perfectly echoes everything else we've seen these characters do, you know, tell an adult something you know, terrible's it, happening. Why? Like why would we ever think of doing that? <laughs> you know, Jenny kinda of echoes the silent frustration of readers around the world, you go, and, oh, my God, just tell somebody, you yeah. know? Like, that was part of my, my thing with Order of the Phoenix. I kept throwing the book down and going, oh, my God, if you would just talk to someone, yeah. you know? If Harry would just talk to someone. Yeah. 
Well, I love the moment in Chamber of Secrets, too, where they get to school and they flew, you know, the flying car through London and everybody in the world saw them and they, and they you know, they, they crashed into the tree. And McGonagall's like, why don't you just send an owl and say you couldn't get on the train? And there's, like, crickets in the background, like, well, that would have been a good idea. Like, we never thought of that. Like, owl? Why? Because we could just fly here. I mean, it's just, like... These, like we've been saying all along, these are, these are, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old kids. They don't think rationally. And, you know, Ron, why didn't you wait for Harry and Hermione? Well, I could have just gone in and seen what happened. Obviously, it works out terribly, but these are flawed characters and they don't do the prudent thing. And I, I like the fact that Arabella and Genia acknowledge the fact that sometimes they're just absolute morons, you know, in their, in their chain of logic. And of course, Ron gets captured by the Death Eaters and he is tortured by the Death Eaters for information. And he doesn't know anything, you know, they're, you know, and the Death Eaters are morons too. They're trying to get the secret keeper out of him. He's like, if I knew there was a, if there's a secret keeper, I wouldn't know who it is, you know, unless he's the secret keeper and they're trying to get out of him who the secret keeper is. And he's like, you know, he's like, you know, dumbass, you know, obviously, you know, if there's a secret keeper out there, I'm not going to know who it is. And I can't tell you anyway, because of the magic involved. And, you know, the death eaters are panicking and, you know, Ron is actually panicking that someone will come for him and do something crazy. And like you said before, less is more, you know, they could have done the thing where, you know, they're slapping him with the whip and he's not going to tell them the thing he knows and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you, you could have 18 chapters of exposition of every decision that Ron's making. They, Arabella and Jenny are smart. They know that we've been reading about this character for years. We're reading fanfic, you know, for the love of Murray. So we know this character very well. We know what Ron is made of. Ron will never give up his friends. Ron is a very loyal guy. Based on the fact that, you know, he would have told them information if he knew it by this point, that tells you all you need to know about what he's going through and the pain he's in. And, you know, the Cruciatus curse is just left on over and over again for long periods of time. And he's being driven mad by this. You know everything he's going through just by telling us the fact that he would have told if he knew. And thank God I don't know anything. Yeah. You know, the next part of this story, where they really get into the most psychologically scarring part of his torture, where they put the Imperius curse on him and they try to make him kill Hermione. I can't imagine sitting down to write this scene. I just, I can't, you know, I, I can see why it would take so long to write this because it, there's so many directions it could go, you know, and you're kind of walking a real fine line, especially with fandom, as far as how much melodrama people are willing to take yeah. and how much is effective and how much is ineffective, you know, and it, it walks the thin line with very, with grace, you know. I think it's hard to read, but in a good way. Yeah. It's hard to read because it's so realistic. Well, you make me think of... It's not hard to read because you want to stab your eyes out with a fork. You make me think of Joe Rowling when she was asked, you know, what Harry Potter characters would you invite to dinner and why? And she said, well, I would invite Harry just to tell him I'm so sorry. (laughs) Because it's like, these these are real people in your head. And you're like, putting now let's make him kill his lover. It's like, what? Like, it's like you're, you're these poor people. Like, and one thing I really like from the writing here is that you know, think back to Goblet of the Fire. Harry brushes off the Imperious Curse the first time, you know, it's put on him. Harry is an anomaly. Harry, you know, lives when he gets hit with the Death Curse and he survives everything. And Harry is kind of like Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica. You know, nothing can kill Harry. Yeah. Nothing can touch Harry. Okay, this is Ron. Ron is Harry Potter's stupid friend. You know, if you watch the Goblet of the Fire movie at all. And he is not uh-huh. as strong as Harry. You know, he may not be as brave as Harry or, you know, maybe he you know, feels like he has more to lose than Harry. 
he's a different guy. They put the Imperius Curse on him, and he can't beat it alone, like Harry could. And I love, you know, Ron's, you know, actually chuckling, telling the story. He's like, I must have looked like an idiot. You know, I'm walking towards Hermione, and I'm backing up, and I'm walking towards Hermione, and I'm backing up, and, you know, I don't know what to do, and I'm putting the wand up, and I'm putting the wand down, and he can't beat the Imperius Curse. He is not Harry Potter. He, you know, cannot just brush this thing off because he loves Hermione. He's weaker than that. And he's humiliated telling this to Ginny, because he wasn't strong enough to stop them. He would have given up Harry if he knew information, because he wasn't strong enough to beat them. And it just reminds me of, you know, this, I'll bring Star Trek up again. There's, you know, the scene in The Next Generation where Captain Picard was assimilated by the Borg, and he's this very stoic, very in-control character who never lets himself get close to anybody, and he's crying on the ground in his brother's vineyard, and he hates his brother, and he you know, never lets his brother see, you know, any vulnerabilities. He's crying, you know, in his brother's vineyard because he wasn't strong enough to stop you know, the bad guys, and the bad guys made him kill 11,000 people, and he wasn't strong enough to fight them. And that's the thing here. Ron blames himself for almost killing Hermione, and that is what he has been taking along with him, and no one has mentioned it other than Harry and Hermione who were there. And you have the moment where Hermione says, I love you. And it is Hermione's strength there. It's Hermione helping Ron, and Hermione doing this with Ron that lets Ron find it within himself to, you know, she augments, you know, Ron's courage and Ron finds the force of will to throw off the curse and murder Bellatrix. And that, and Not Ron, murder. I don't like that word. Kill. <laughs> yeah. He, well, he, kill. well, he feels like he, that's why I said he feels like he murdered someone. I think that's actually and in the story too. I like how the ultimate goal of this scene from Ron's perspective is absolution. Yeah. You know, he wants forgiveness, basically, for being human. Yeah. You know, because it would be hard, you know, I, I think, you know, sometimes we get, don't give Ron enough credit, and I'm going to push this down people's throats until he's as loved as he deserves. But, you know, and Harry, as you may mention, magical anomaly. Normal people, when they get hit with the Avada Kedavra curse. Die. You know, normal people don't, fly broomsticks around dragons at the age of 14. I mean, he, so much happens to him in his life that is abnormal, that his sense of normality is way off the charge of what, like, should be happening developmentally, you know, as far as magic is concerned. Ron, I'm sure, is a very exceptional wizard, but he's not fantastic, you know? And he is a short stick because he, he's not Harry Potter, but he doesn't have to be Harry Potter. If there was two Harry Potters, we would all shoot ourselves in the head because it, we just wouldn't be able to take it. But, you know, Ron needs to give himself credit for serving the purpose that he served in the war, which probably was to keep Harry on track. Yeah. You know, make sure that he was, you know, taking care of himself and, you know... Ron is a very good sidekick. He does his his job is very well. He just needs to learn how to, and, and this is part of this process of learning how to, how do I as a grown man accept my my role in the war that's already over, yeah. and how do I decide what my role is going to be in the world that I helped create this war. Well, you know yeah. this too, and Ron is the only character I'm. I'm thinking about this as you're talking, you know, Harry killed Voldemort, Arthur killed Lucius, and this is what Ginny says to, like you said, absolve Ron. Very simple 
response that, you know, on Jenny's behalf to, you know, everything that Ron, you know, Ron is devastated that he killed. He is devastated that he almost killed Hermione. He is humiliated that he wasn't strong enough to stop them and that he almost would have given, you know, Harry up if he had the chance. You know, Jenny's response, Harry killed Voldemort. Dad killed Lucius. You know, people did mm-hmm. terrible things. You saved Hermione. You know, Hermione's love alone wouldn't have saved her. You saved Hermione. Everyone did awful things. And Ron is really the only character who I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, who has difficulty living with what the war did to him. And, you know, there's so many other characters I read about in other fandoms and watch in other fandoms that they just can't, they hate what war does to them. War made them a killer and they hate the enemy. They hate, you know, the, you know, the race that they were fighting or the, or the nationality they were fighting because that, that event turned them into killers. And Ron, you know, killed this disgusting, vile woman who tortured him for two days and tried to get him to kill Hermione and would have killed Harry and tortured Neville's parents. And, you know, you can't get worse than Bellatrix, you know, unless you get to Voldemort, you know, himself. And he killed her to save Hermione. And he is, you know, so devastated that, that he, that he did that. Ron's the guy that, you know, he may be loud and he may want to, you know, rip Draco's skull off in the bar, but Ron isn't a killer. And even look back at that scene in the bar now, you know, Ron was always, you know, the, the really aggressive, very protective guy at Hogwarts. You know, you look back to this chapter and Ron wanted to, you know, tear Draco's head off, but he wouldn't do it because he promised Hermione he wouldn't. And we look at this, you know, as we're reading it for the first time, we say, well, this is Ron. Ron's always been, you know, a little high strung. Think of it now from the perspective that Ron has killed. And, you know, he is hating himself for doing that. And he's contemplating killing Malfoy, you know, for Hermione. And think of that. He hates himself for being a killer, but he wants to kill again. And it just really adds so many layers to this character of Ron. And I love the fact that Ginny, with such simple words, forgives him and lets him know that it's okay and that everything will be all right. I just just think that is so well done. You know, I'm if it took them five years to write this chapter, I think they would have done it. You know, you know, you know just yeah, you know, it's part of the beauty of the world of Harry Potter, and you know, also the writing. You know, having to credit, but uh, you know, I I think to say that they, I think Harry to a certain extent is avoiding. Part was confronting what the war did to him. Yeah. You know, he, whenever he has a moment to think, he's off doing something. He doesn't yeah. want to think. Oh, exactly. Ron is the only one who is having trouble dealing with it, but working on dealing with it. Every character did do something that they can't forgive. And in many cases, you know, it's something that was beyond their control. Hermione knew that if she had gone back to Hogwarts, you know, her, her family might be in danger, but she did it anyway because she didn't have a choice. Harry was her family. She wasn't going to abandon him. And Remus blames himself for not, you know, taking Harry when he was a baby, even though there's no realistic way he could have done it. Ron blames himself for killing Bellatrix. I think Ron's is the most, you know, single event thing that happened that I can't forgive because it fundamentally changes me as a person, whereas everyone else feels as though they made a single mistake that they wish they could take back, but it doesn't really mean that they're a different person. You know, Remus isn't cold and uncaring. Hermione isn't, you know, blatantly disregarding her parents. Ron, I think, now feels that he is a killer and he will always be a killer. And I think that's the difference. And that's the one... I think you're absolutely right. Ron is the first one to really address that. Everyone else kind of runs away from it or tries to fix it in ways that aren't the most helpful. Hermione wants to become a thinker. 
and somehow if I'm a thinker, that will bring me redemption for what I did to my parents. But it's not. That's not the way you go about doing it. Ron is the only one who I think very humanly deals with what happened to him. Right. And I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up uh, Jen's favorite part of the chapter. So, you know, Ginny is so drained and she kept going even when it was hurting her. And, you know, Ron brings her back to, the, to you know, Lupin Lodge and tucks her into bed. And I just love, you know, the the relationship between these two characters. I love how Ron starts telling a fairy tale, you know, to Ginny as a bedtime story, probably for the billionth time. And she's like, oh, God, not that one. And it's the one where basically Ron is, the, you know, the most brave, most loved guy on the planet. He's brilliant and he's all this. Right. And, you know, he, he's such a good, you know, caretaker for his younger sister. And he has so much fan mail that Harry Potter is assigned to sort through his fan mail. And what a great <laughs> story for Ron to tell, <laughs> you know, the Harry Potter star to his fan mail. And I love the fact that, you know, as Ginny drifts off to sleep, you know, Ron's you know, rubbing his hands, you know, through her hair. This isn't healer and patient. This is brother and sister. And A and Z do a great job of making these two characters people with a past beyond, right. you know, don't you dare date my younger sister, which is really what fanfic really, that's the extent of Ron's relationship with Ginny and a lot of fanfics. You know, he's overprotective. This fic really fleshes out the fact that they have a history because he's tucked her into bed probably a billion times. You know, I think part of it too is, um, it, it just kind of, Stems us back to, oh yeah, Mom and Jenny are related. You know, this is, we've talked about this over and over and over again, but it really is the case that a lot of the times you have Harry, Ron, Hermione, Jenny, and then the rest of Weasley. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have three separate groups, and then, oh, you know, kind of, sometimes we just need to be reminded, you know, that, oh yeah, these people knew each other before they knew Harry Potter. And, um, you know, I think um, this scene in particular is one of my favorites. It puts me in mind a lot of my brother. And, um, and you know, the, especially like the beginning, you know, where they're teasing each other. And then at the end where the older sibling puts the younger sibling to bed. And it's a little bit like, I, I'm not going to say that this time. I got oh, say it. We, we said it last time. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> It's a little bit like at the first time you get drunk and your older sibling puts you to bed. <laughs> you know, the little bit of the, the, you know, the hair rubbing and the telling the bedtime story. I mean, you know, she really, and the reason I make that comparison is she voluntarily incapacitated herself. Granted, it was for the greater good. And I've never been drunk for the greater good, but if somebody were to ask me, I would still be there. But, uh, this is, know. I love how we change, you know, Ginny, you know, absolves Ron of his sins and, you know, does this terrific thing. And, right. and you're like, oh, yeah, it's like that time I got drunk and. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you too. Yeah. We uh, we reviewed this chapter for you know a, a few days ago, and we can't use it because the audio audio quality was so bad. But Jen really loves this one moment. This is the when she thinks of after the end, she thinks of this one moment. <laughs> and Lady Chi made that comparison, and Jen like drove her car off the road, like, "Oh my god, you just destroyed after the end for me." <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> Sorry, Jen. Love you. Well, you know. Jen and I have been spending a lot of time Miamiing each other lately, and um, she—I don't think she was quite prepared for even that. Like even some of the things I said in I, I am conversations didn't really prepare for that. But anyway, poor Jen. <laughs> I, my mind doesn't work like anybody else's mind works. Yes, but. All right, moving on. Chapter 27, The Seeker. The chapter begins from Penelope's perspective. 
where she feels like a very mm-hmm. bad mother because she has, you know, left her uh, baby in Molly's care and has gone to Culperat, uh to kind of find herself and get away from it all. And I just want to say this: in most fics, you know, you you, you pick up a new fanfic and you're, you're basing everything on the canon. You don't like Percy Weasley. He's not a sympathetic character. You don't relate to him. You don't like him at all. Well, Penelope Clearwater is mentioned very infrequently. She has, like, one line. She gets petrified by a basilisk. So to imagine, you know, the, the girlfriend character who's rarely mentioned of the character you don't like, you know, being a main character in a fic, it doesn't really appeal to you. And then you read what they do with Penelope and how they, they, they build her character literally from the ground up. Not only do you associate with Percy and respect Percy, you really feel for Penelope who you didn't even know before you sat down to read After the End. So I just want to give uh, Arabella and Jenny kudos for just developing such a sympathetic character who I really like. I would like to know Penelope if she were real. She's just such a fun person. You know, I you know how I said there are themes that I would set. Yep. Um, probably will be one. Just because I, you know, I think it's great that they brought Percy back, you know, and uh, not bring Percy back, but they, you know, make Percy into somebody that's lovable, and they make this original, great, basically original character out of Penelope Bill Clearwater. But, uh, I mean, it still doesn't do much for me. You know, like, I appreciate the symbolism of Leo, even her um, portion in the later part of this fic, where she's doing things that I can't talk about in cover of the fic, but even her role later on in the story, some of it I would just get rid of. Um, and this scene is one of them, because it's kind of, it, it's almost like they're going, well, this chapter is only 15 pages long. We really need another scene. That's kind of what it feels like to me. It feels like an afterthought. I don't agree uh, with that. Um, I think that one of the things Penelope brings to the story is she's one of the people in the story, who has literally lost everything. She has no family. She has you know, nothing but her baby and her in-laws. And, you know, a war just went on. And I brought this up in the first episode. Like, everybody lives in this thing. You know, Hagrid obviously dies and Dumbledore dies. I mean, Sirius lives. And Sirius died in the book. I mean, they, they escaped, you know, Voldemort relatively intact, except for the psychological scars. And I think Penelope is the exception to that. Penelope literally lost everything. And I think there's a lot that they add, you know, in terms of layers to the backstory of the Harry Potter universe, not just, you know, related to this fic. You know, whenever you hear of a muggle coming to Hogwarts, you know, the the parents were so thrilled, you know, that, you know, they finally understood what was wrong with their child and they were, you know, so happy that there was a place their child would belong. And, you know, even though they're magical, this is wonderful. I just love the fact that Penelope's parents are, you know, deeply religious and see this as a cult and they pray for her, you know, soul. And, you know, she's petrified by a basilisk and, you know, that, you know, she, her parents don't even respond to Percy's letter. And I just love the fact that, you know, Percy being such a cold, you know, heartless person, you know, as far as, you know, a typical reader is concerned, Percy was her only lifeline. Percy was, was the most emotional person that she probably ever met in terms of someone that, you know, truly cared about her. I, I disagree. I, I think that she actually adds a lot of depth to the story. I think she brings something that not a lot of the characters do. She really personifies loss and rebirth. So I'm glad she's there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm just constantly looking for a way to make this fit shorter. <laughs> me, kind of, I love it, and I love all the little details. I'm at the point, I'm sure that Arabella and, and I've heard Jenna say this as well, Thomas, at points it's just like, oh my god, nobody is happy. Let's move on, people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, that's just kind of where I'm coming from. Okay. All right, so Penelope gets to... Um 
Culperat, and she's kind of sitting out on the water. And I love the fact that you have a scene with Penelope Clearwater and Mad-Eye Moody. This is a pairing you will never see in the canon. And, you know, Mad-Eye, you know, in, in After the End, he really comes across as an old man. I think, you know, if you watch the movies, Brendan Gleeson doesn't come across as an old man. And, you know, sometimes he's more quirky than ancient. And I like the fact that he's an old guy who's looking at pictures of Leo, and he's being grandfatherly. And he's really, he's the old guy who's retired like eight times you know, he's always needed too much to, to, to drift off. And, you know, they go into Culperat and, you know, he's so annoyed with the, with, with the trainees. He's got the aura trainees and they're all unprofessional. And, you know, the one who, you know, surprises him and was very cold and very official to Penelope, then, you know, drops the facade and gives her a big smile and says, it's so great to see you. And, you know, Mad-Eye rolls his eye because, okay, I thought you know, I could trust her, I guess not. <laughs> and I, I like the fact that, you know, now we're getting into a little bit more of the plot. You know, we, we've got all these people in this, and, I, and I, I'd like you to get into the description of Culperat in a minute because, you know, it's this, you know, it's seaweed infested. There's more people who are taking the prisoners and shoving their heads in, you know, the water and turning them over, you know, you know, the stunned you know, prisoners, and, you know, it's a disgusting, smelly, you know, offensive place where a lot of these people are going to spend the rest of their lives, and, you know, something is not right here. You, you know, you have, you know, and, 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 you know, moving on from that, you have, uh, you have Charlie and you have Cho show up, and there was another problem in Azkaban, and, you know, something is wrong, the dragons are failing and the Dementors are acting very strangely, we need a way to monitor what's going on inside of Azkaban with the Dementors. We need to know what they're up to. And I love this part of the story so much because, all right, let me put it to you this way. On the uh, Polyrific Weekly forums, we let members be sorted into houses and they all have access to their common rooms. We seem to have a lot of Hufflepuffs and a lot of Ravenclaws. And I'm a Hufflepuff and pretty much anyone else you've heard in this podcast, including uh, Lady Chi here, is a Ravenclaw. And I, and I have to ask you, what is up with you people being exhibitionists? <laughs> being what now? Did you say exhibitionists? I believe that's what I said. <laughs> Are we referencing the spell here? I believe we're referencing no. the spell. <laughs> yeah, okay, this isn't like, you know, the, the Ravenclaws found, you know, like a hole in the wall that lets them see into the Gryffindor you know, common room. This is hardcore <laughs> surveillance, you know, and they've seen okay. every guy oh. in this school naked. And I'm like, this is like hardcore. This is <laughs> like sign of the dotted line. Like, Well, you know, I, I think, um, <laughs> obviously you don't hang around a lot of 14 and 15 year old girls, but, <laughs> but this is the one, this so, is the quiet ones. This is the ones you think are in the library, you know, studying and they're, and they're not personable. About about Ravenclaws, I think you know. Um, well, I mean, you're getting to know me better, you know, and and you know Jen really well. And I, neither one of us are, are the sit in the library and quietly study kind. It's it's more of a it's more of a we use our intellect to solve problems more often than like a Gryffindor or a Hufflepuff would use. You know, this, this is the way I say it: a Gryffindor or a Hufflepuff would use their feelings to solve problems. A Gryffindor is, you know, more likely to, to solve a problem based on his sense of loyalty and nobility. And a Hufflepuff is more likely to solve a problem on how is this going to make everybody feel better. And a Ravenclaw is more concerned with intellectually what's going on, yeah. you know. And a Slytherin is more concerned about how is this going to work best for me, but he would also use his intellect to solve a problem. I, I think this, 
I, I think that's more of what you're going for. But you know, I I I can see a 15 having access to to, to magic and like figuring out a spell like that. I mean, I would. <laughs> I love the line where Charlie basically looks scandalized and Penny is thinking to herself, well, he should. I don't think there's a Ravenclaw you know, alive that hasn't seen him in the changing rooms. <laughs> it's so, like, hardcore. I'm like, oh my god. And I'm actually thinking as you're just talking, Jen was the first member of the uh, of the forum to ask to have, you know, an adult-oriented, private, restricted room. And I'm like, okay, and there's a lot of Ravenclaws in there. What the hell are they doing in there? Like, it's, it's scaring me a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> oh my god. Oh my goodness. But yeah, so we're going to use the spell to spy on the Dementors. We're going to use it for surveillance in Azkaban. I love the fact that Charlie tries to do it, and Charlie just has no earthly idea how to use the spell. And it's it's yeah. this deeply rooted, you know, Ravenclaw, you know, secret that's been passed down from Rowena herself, probably, which makes me really wonder what the heck was going on during the Founders days. <laughs> um, you know, so we we get that plot point dropped in, and I do. Someone commented on the forums about this that you know the chapter ends with you know the, the, the dragons are failing. You know something's up with Draco. You know we don't know really what, but we just know that you know you know let's quote Dumbledore here: dark and difficult times lie ahead. You know we don't know what's going to happen, and I love the fact that you know Moody's last line in, in the section is "I don't like this. I don't like this one bit." And you're just like insert ominous music here, <laughs> like. Foreshadowing. It kind of reminds me of. Have you ever seen the the Madeline cartoon? No. The the nun that's in charge of all the orphans. Mm-hmm. It's always running around late at night when Madeline's out of bed, going, "Something is not right. Something is not right." And that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the visual I get in my head with Mad Eye every day. Well, I usually think to myself, you know, if you're flying on a dragon and the dragon tries to kill you, and bad guys don't react to it. Something's up anyway. But I just love the fact that, you know, Moody had to tell us that something was not, you know, right here. But I just thought that was amusing. I'm curious if, you know, Genya is a Ravenclaw. And if so, is there any particular reason that she made the Ravenclaw girls exhibitionists? Hmm. That would be a good question for her to answer. <laughs> she has my email address. We'll hear from her next week on that issue. She just drove her car off the road into a ditch right now. Sorry about that, Genya. Um, <laughs> So moving on. What's up with you and driving into ditches? <laughs> well, no, well, is, I know it is. Well, I hit a deer, so you know maybe I'll swerve around the deer next. You no, know, I was going between between all the deer in the world and, and ditches. I don't know if I want to be in a car with you. To be quite honest. Oh man! Well, I was listening. I was talking to uh, Lady Chi the other day. You know, when she's mentioning, you know, I know you hit a deer, but you know what? Where I come from, in you know the Midwest, that's a rite of passage. And my response was, I was on a highway doing sixty miles an hour. Like it's not like I'm driving, you know, a dark abandoned road, and I bump into Bambi. It's like you know, I'm, I'm driving through the central artery of Boston. I'm like deer, but um, <laughs> different part of the world. I was gonna make a comment about Bambi, but I'll. I'll leave it because we really should stay focused. <laughs> the next section is, of course, Harry and Jenny are exchanging letters. Harry is on his dragon, and Jenny is presumably doing potions. Mm-hmm. And um, this, I just, I want to hit on just one thing real briefly before we move on to Lion's favorite portion of this thing, um, the Quidditch match, um, is that you know there are there's an awful lot of vertical action in the story, right? You know, there's a lot of building up of layers, mm-hmm. you know, to get to a, a climax that we haven't gotten to yet, right? Yep. But there's also very much a horizontal level to the story. You know, Ron is disclosing what happened to him during seventh year, 
at around the same time that Hermione is disclosing what happened to her parents. Yeah. You know, and Harry and Jenny are writing letters at the same time that Ron and Hermione are writing letters. And I, I like all the little all the little mm, connections that we can make horizontally in mm. our mind. Yeah. With the action as well as the constant vertical action. Okay. That's, that was my comment about that. And I just want to point out that Harry is a much better leather writer at the stage of the game than he was when he first had to write to Ginny, you know, a couple chapters oh, yeah. back. Well, a couple cha- it's like Jen said last time. It's, how are you? Dragons are fun. Are you enjoying yeah. being a healer? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, that was a leather? But, you know... He he's much better now. He's joking about death, you know, and he, he he's <laughs> he, 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 you know he he's being Harry. I mean, Harry, you know, you got to bring death up at least every letter. But uh, he, they seem to do a much better job. And you're at the stage in the story now, especially in chapter twenty-seven, where, like you said earlier, it's 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 a Shakespearean play, and we're moving into the third act. Before we do that, we're gonna have a little fun. Everything's fine. There's no real unresolved issues, you know, unless you get to Bill and Floor again, and the characters just get to have a little bit of, you know, alone time, a little bit of breathing room before everything gets screwed up again. So, you know, you have Harry and Ginny, and they're doing fine. You have Ron and Hermione, who are kind of healing themselves at the same time. And you can tell that, you know, especially on that front, the Ron and Hermione that we have in Chapter 28 are not the Ron and Hermione that we had, you know, previously, you know, back in Chapter 3. You know, those characters will reunite as much different people than, you know, when they departed. But uh, moving on a little bit, we go to a Quidditch match, and you have Harry and you have Ron, you know, watching the game. And I love the I love the names. You know, you have Barknap, and now you have Mister Gladrag. And <laughs> I just always wonder how they name these people. But you know, you have he's well, like no, go ahead. Gladrag is actually from the book. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Gladrag is the uh, uh, I I'm sure of it. There's at at the World Cup. There's at Advertisement for Gladrag Oh, go go you! I had no, I had no other idea, but um, you know, I wonder what, how Joe Rowling comes up with these names. But um, like how I covered that right there, that was nice. I turned it back on Joe. Um, so you have you know, I love Ron here. You know, Gladrag, Mister Gladrag is you know pompous, and he 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 doesn't even get the fact that he's pompous, and he kind of insults Hermione. And Ron's ready to you know throttle him, and then he offers free stuff and says that he loves the Chudley cannons and always has. And then Ron's response is, "He can't be that bad. I mean, he likes the cannons. I mean, <laughs> it's like you meet a guy in the street and he yeah. likes Harry Potter. Okay, you know, he can't be that bad. If you like Harry Potter, you can't be a mugger or anything like that. So yeah, exactly. Uh, unless you're Vol- you, you, you know the, the founding member of the Voldemort fan club." But, um, exactly. so, you know, the, the plot progresses and Maureen gets taken out. And I love the fact that, you know, Oliver completely goes to pieces that Maureen, you know, is hurt. Yeah. He, for, he, for, he, he is so shocked and he is so concerned he forgets to play Quidditch. Ooh. Yeah. I wonder why. And then, you know, Harry, of course, he's having a conversation with Ron and he, he realizes kind of suddenly that he's the second string reserve player. So, Maybe he should be down there. <laughs> Did you find it odd so, that Ron, of all people, wouldn't know who the second string seeker is on the Charlie Cannons? Or that nobody would... Like, I know it's no. in the plot that, you know, that's classified information, but you, you picture the real world. It's like, I'm a big political junkie, and I know everything about... I know who, you know, all the players are, and I know, you know, all the little rules. You, you, you think that someone would have figured out that Harry Potter's still in the Cannons. It's not like, oh, I'm still on the team. Did I forget to mention that? I just thought that was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't pay attention to 
work all that much, so yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. Uh, the biggest news in my world right now is that our coach, our basketball coach, left, and we have to get a, we got a new one. So, and I I didn't find out about that until much <laughs> after it happened. So, I hate to tell you one night, but um. I was doing a homework project with uh, two other people I'm in graduate school, and I emailed a bunch of people saying, hey, can we meet tonight and talk about this? And they wrote back, and they're like, it's the Super Bowl. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Didn't know. Uh, my bad. <laughs> I think I was actually reading fan fiction during the Super Bowl, you know, for those of you who are scandalized by that. So I love the fact that Harry charges down to the field, and he's in denial, too, because, you know, he may be a dragon rider, and he may have killed a little person named Voldemort, but, you know, he, he's never played professional Quidditch before, and it's scary. I, I just yeah. love that aspect of Harry, too. You know, go, you know, fulfill this ancient prophecy and save the world. That's fine. But, you know, if you have to ask a girl out, you're screwed. It's just that mindset. It's the little things in life. Yeah. And Harry gets down there, and he's in denial. He's like, well, you know, obviously, you know, you have a first, you know, reserve. You don't need me. And the first reserve is like, I'm afraid to fly. Please do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it's kind of like having a vice president who, you know, is 88 years old, and you're praying to God the first guy doesn't get shot or something. It's like, wouldn't you have a reserve seeker who could actually play if necessary? But um, I just thought that was amusing. So Harry, of course, suits up, and he's going out there, and he's completely unprepared for this. You know, this isn't, you know, you think riding dragons with, you know, playing, you know, on the school team for seven years would have prepared them for this, but it doesn't at all. And it's so different, and there's people, yeah. and, you know, the cameras are going off, and they're blinding him, and, you know, all, you know, the, you have, Leprechauns or you know, sparkly dust up in the air, you know, they're gold up in the air and it you know, it, it he thinks everything is a snitch and he can't see and you know the other team is you thought Draco is bad, the other team is just brutal with them. And he's playing professional Quidditch. And as we read this, you know, a little bit later we get to chapter twenty seven and three quarters, which was written by, um, by a guest writer. I don't have the guest writer's name in front of me. Do you know it was written by Firelock? Firelock. And uh, it's the tale of Eloise Midgen and Colin Creevy living through, you know, Harry's first professional Quidditch outing. And, you know, earlier when we were talking about Bill and Fleur, I called them the second dopiest couple in in, in the story. Because these are the first, yeah. These people, oh my God, like how stupid do you have to be anyway? And and I say that, you know, if if these were real people, I would like to go to dinner with them and have drinks with them. I, I, I love Eloise and I love Colin. They're the dorky kids from high school who nobody probably ever... Like, you know, Collins, the hero worship guy, and Eloise is the pimply faced girl that, you know, is if they had a gym class at Hogwarts, she'd always be kicked last for kickball, you know what I mean? And, you know, they turn into these fabulous people who have both been through their own personal hells and they came out of it just good, decent, wholesome people and you like them a lot. And Eloise, you know, here's the thing, Eloise is a reporter. She's supposed to be like sharp as a tack and figure things out and get the good story. Can she not figure out why Colin hangs around every night that she's there? <laughs> it's like Harry, I, you know, defeat Voldemort, yeah. but you can't fi- you, you, you can't ask a girl out. It's like you're an investigative reporter, but you can't figure out the guy really likes you. It's just oh, oh my god. Yeah, you know, and I love how you know she's going out to take this assignment, and you know, Colin goes with her, and they end up in this box. You yep. know watching the game, and she's she's going, how am I going to cover a sports match? I don't know anything about 
Could she's I like, Quidditch is the one with the brooms, right? Like, it's like oh my god. <laughs> like, I, I, like, I know what a speaker is. <laughs> I can do this. What? <laughs> like, oh, sweetie. What? That's like saying I can write about the Bosnia and Herzegovina War is because I, I know where Greece is. I mean, it's just totally, <laughs> like, you don't just have one part of the picture. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. I am not a sports-oriented person at all, and I'll be the first person to, to, to claim that. And, you know, I, there was some mis- miscommunication in my family. My aunt had been under the impression I was going to coach a kid's basketball team. And she mentioned this to me, and I looked at her, and I'm like, basketball's the one with the hoops, right? Like, it's like, what? <laughs> and, like, I completely I completely sympathize with Eloise here. You know, she's she knows Quidditch, and she knows who the players are, but she's not good at it. And I love the part where she gets down you know, to the Weasleys, and that's her thing. She is a good person. People like her. And she yeah. doesn't abuse that. She likes people. She likes them more than she likes her job. She, you know, would never do anything to cross – she would never do anything that would cross any ethical boundary. You know, I think she would rather quit her job before she did that. And that's how she is successful. People like her and she will treat them fairly at any cost, you know, regardless of what, you know, it does to her career. And that is how she gets her stories. And I like the fact that she's behind, uh, you know, Fred and Angelina. She's copying down their analysis of the game because she needs that for her story because God knows she doesn't know what the hell's going on. And yeah, I love that moment too is just even to back up and go through it again. You have, you know, Harry gets substituted into the game and you see, you know, that, you know, she knows that she's the Harry Potter reporter. When, when something's up with Harry, send in Eloise because she'll get the story. And I love the fact right. that Eloise and Colin met right before we first saw them in chapter three. That was their first assignment together. And you, I think I got the impression reading it the first time they've been working together for a while. That was it. You know, they yeah. first meet and they go out and, you know, she gets the Harry Potter story, and now she's the Harry Potter reporter. So she gets sent to the game, and she doesn't even bring a coat with her. And, you know, she and Colin are hustling down there. They don't know what they're going to do. And I love when she meets uh, Nancy Flummery. And I have to admit, I got the impression that Nancy Flummery was almost like an evil Rose K. Brown. She was, you know, an attractive young woman, you know, a contemporary of Rose's that, you know, was a Slytherin and she was out for, you know, the story and, you know, she was very icy cold and she was very, you know, just, she would just cut you to pieces. I didn't expect what we got. And what we got was literally one of the aunts from James and the giant peach, just this, you know, woman with 17. She, we, it's like, we got like job of the hut. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, she's got like 17 chins with four moles on each chin. And she's, you know, it, it, we got like a cross between Rita Skeeter and Bellatrix Lestrange. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. I wasn't expecting that, but from what we got, you know, you hate her just like you, you hate Dolores Umbridge, you know, maybe they were channeling Dolores. I mean, they got, Tonks into yeah. this fix on us. Maybe they were channeling Umbridge. But I love the fact that she completely gets in Flummery's face and she calls the office and says, Oh, I guess she wants to do the story instead of me. <laughs> I love how her boss yells back if she steps one foot near Harry Potter, she's fired. And I, I, y- 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 you're just cheering for Eloise at that point. And I just thought that was just a fabulous, uh, you know, moment yeah. in effect. You know, it also shows that her editor is a smart man because there's no way Harry's going to talk to to a Nancy Flummery, yeah. you know, he he would much rather talk to Eloise Vision, and I, he makes that perfectly clear when he catches the snitch. And I, I don't know if he breaks his arm or if he dislocates his arm or he, he like breaks all the bones in his arm or something. And <laughs> you know, 
and he's laying on the stretcher, and before Eloise asks him any questions in the hospital, she asks the healer. She says, has he given him any pain medication? It, would it be ethical to talk to him now? And the healer just about has kittens, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, journalistic ethics, what? <laughs> well, I love that, because this healer, you know, obviously doesn't like reporters. He doesn't like, you know, the Rita Skeeters. And I just want to say for a moment, I don't know where Rita Skeeter is. I don't think we ever get told. I'm assuming she's still, you know, in a jar somewhere in Hermione's bedroom. I don't know. But, um, you know, yeah. chopping on the last bit of leather saying, well, someone come let me out. Um, you know, so, you know, he doesn't like reporters. And you can tell he's very cold to Eloise. He doesn't like the fact that, you know, Harry's just, you know, been nearly killed. He's got Maureen with, you know, her head wound on the other stretcher. And, you know, he, he, she's intruding on this family moment, you know, to get a story. And then she says, you know, I won't do this if it would be unethical. And you know that that would probably cost Eloise her job or at the very least, you know, destroy her reputation yeah. as a reporter. And she still won't do it. And he kind of uncrosses his arms and, and you know, you can tell instantly, he's like, I look forward to reading your, your story. That is how, you know, that after the story wraps, Eloise will be successful because she is just that good, decent person who is a person first and a reporter second. And that is, you know, something that probably doesn't exist in our world, I think it's something that's a little too romanticized and, you know, maybe a little too yeah. perfect. It's kind of like the West Wing. You know, politics isn't really like that. People aren't really that good. But, you know, it's something that gives us hope. So I just, I love Eloise's character, you know, so very much here. I love the fact that, you know, the you know the Texan, you know, is pinching her butt and she, you know, knocks him down like, you know, Neville and the, with, uh, what is it, the Petrificus Totalis curse? Uh, it's the Petrificus Totalis. Exactly. And he goes down for the count. I love the fact that even though she takes them out, I think you get the impression just from the, you know, this, you know, this Texan reporter who, you know, very stereotypical. I think the fact that, you know, if we could have had a little moment from his perspective laying there on the ground as they, you know, shovel off to, you know, meet up with the Weasleys, I think he would even think to himself, I probably deserved that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think he'd be yeah. pissed. I think he, this probably happens to him about once or twice a week. Uh, but I, I love the way that Eloise gets her story. She connects with the Weasleys, and she does it as a person, not as a reporter. And yeah. I like how she defers to Ginny. Now, think of Ginny's first uh, you know, meeting of Eloise in the story. She marches up. Harry is very wounded from the war emotionally. He's very withdrawn. This is you know during the chapter where you know Harry and Ginny aren't even speaking about anything that's happened. They're very know, formal with each other. And she marches up to poor Eloise on her, you know, her probably like her second or third week in the job, and she grabs the notebook out of Eloise's hand and crosses out eighty percent of the questions. And that you know, Ginny is ultra defensive of Harry. I think it says two things in this chapter. Number one, you know, she doesn't have to grab Eloise's hand and drag Eloise, you know, into the hospital wing. I don't think she does it, you know, for Eloise's career at all. She can't know what it's worth. She likes Eloise and she wants to, you know, be decent to her friend. And number two, I think she gets the fact that this isn't the Harry from chapter three. This is a Harry who, number one, can, he can take it. And number two, this is a Harry who I, I think she recognizes as both, you know, Harry's girlfriend and as a healer recognizes that this is a story Harry needs to tell, and Eloise is the one that he needs to tell it to. And I I just love that dynamic. And Eloise recognizes that the Weasleys are his family. They are his strength. They are the story here. People don't really care as much, you know, about Harry, or maybe they do, but they don't 
maybe if they thought about it, they wouldn't. They they care more about Harry the person than Harry the Quidditch player. And this is the story of Harry Potter. Harry Potter is you know the guy that when you ask him how did you defeat Voldemort, he says I did it with a lot of help. I didn't do it myself. He's the guy that wishes Hermione was there, and he you know he's badly wounded. That was my that was my tearjerker moment. You know he misses Hermione so much, and you know I love the fact that he's like laying there, you know, bloody on the, you know drugged up, you know, on painkillers and, you know, he just caught the snitch. They found the snitch, like, in his broken arm, and, you know, they won the game and he did it. And his first thought is, damn, I wish Hermione was here. I just, you know, it's, you tear up, like, 50 times when you're reading, you know, this chapter. And I, don't know. I just, I love Oliver so much, like, as a character. I love to read about him. I love to write about him. And, um, I love this Lonely Night character. You know? And... Just the interactions between them are so funny. I think. You know, they're trying to be all sneaky, and Eloise Midgens <laughs> picks up that there's something going on there, you know? Eloise Midgen <laughs> doesn't pick up on the fact that Colin likes her, but Eloise Midgen picks up on the fact that Oliver likes Maureen. Let's just be clear on this. Right. And they're just so... I, I You know, I just love this chapter. It's like two of my favorite characters, from their perspective... In this whole story, and so so good, such a good chapter, and so in style too with what Arabella and Zenia were doing. Yeah, it doesn't it, feel it like a guest chapter. No, it doesn't feel like a guest chapter, and that's kudos to Firelock. You know, it could be written from Arabella and Zenia's point of view, or you know, their style. I, you know, it's minimalistic in description, and and it, it works well. I, I'm glad they took a break, and you know, yeah. And I'm glad that the person that they picked was able to to, to follow in the style, because otherwise it would have just been jarring. But I've never I've never met Firelocks before. I don't know I don't know of anything else that she's done, so I don't know if this is her. I'm assuming it's a her. <laughs> um, if you're a man, we apologize profusely. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's just one of those things where like 90% of the fandom is female anyway, so it's just better to assume. On the Parfic uh, Weekly Forum, we have a like a ladies' parlor, and we have the the Snouts Flare for the men. And Snouts Flare is a little empty nowadays. Uh, any guys listening to this, come join us. We'll shout out there, carry on. <laughs> yeah, it's like you and Mac, right? And who else? And Jen's husband, and that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, I don't really have much else to say about this chapter. Um, uh, you know, other than I love it and I love the angle and I love the article. Oh, the article is Ellie just is great. Yeah. I mean, that, no wonder they were so happy to let her, <laughs> you know, go with the story because it really did work well. It, it, it worked well and, and. I would I would be very proud of that article. So I definitely I especially like how it starts. This is like a great starting line. Harry Potter is happy. Yeah. That's you know? that's so much and of the story, yeah. This so much of the story is that it's just a very simple things mean yeah. a lot to the readers. Exactly. This chapter makes these characters very human. You know, Harry can ride a dragon, he can defeat Voldemort, he gets fooled at professional Quidditch. And granted, they were cheating, but he makes a lot of errors. He's not superhuman. The Weasleys and Sirius and Remus and everyone flock to the game as soon as they hear that Harry's involved. And Ginny, you know, wants to help him, but she can't touch him. So she does what she can for him. And she, you know, moves Eloise into a position where she can help Harry. 
you know, because Ginny can't. And I just, there's, there's so much going on. There's so many layers. I love the fact that the twins, you know, are mocking Oliver for telling Harry to catch the snitch or die trying, and, you know, third time's a charm. And I love the fact that Eloise gets respect from her boss and that she puts Flummery in her place. And I just, this, this chapter is just such a summarization of everything that we know about these characters. They are family and they are ordinary people and that they can do great things, but they still have simple problems and they still fail as much as we all do. And it really reinforces for me that the Harry Potter universe, you know, with the mirrors of Erised and the Dementors and the Boggarts and, you know, the school and the magic, none of that really means anything. These are real people. These are human beings and they screw up and they fix things and they prosper and everything We'll be fine in the end. And I love at the end of the story, you know, that Eloise is exhausted and she's not going to take the other job, you know, that her boss tries to give her and she's going home, but she'll go on the date with Colin tomorrow and it finally clicks that maybe Colin likes her. And I love, you know, it, I know it's back in chapter three, but I love how they dedicate, you know, the chapter to all of the Eloise Mitchens and Colin Creevies in the world. Sometimes everything does work out. That's the story of Harry Potter. You know, you could be the orphan, you know, you could be the poor kid, you could be, you know, the person who lost, you know, your parents to a disease, or you could be the person whose, you know, husband died, or, you know, who lost a child. These are things that happen to a lot of people, but in the end, everything really does work out. And I just think, I like that between these two acts and this massive story, they stop for a moment, and they just, you know, pause on that one point, because I think it's one of the reasons that we all read fanfic. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's ultimately for that hope. Yeah. You know, and hope and love, and I think, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but that's why we care. Yeah. You know, it's just a good story. Absolutely. No matter how bad things get, keep trying. Because, you know, if Harry Potter can, you know, come back from the, if, if you could, if you're the kid who's literally locked in the cupboard under the stairs, you know, you think you're the, wor- you know, look how well things could potentially work out. Not saying you're going to wind up in the magical school, but the every, you know, from, from the most desperate, destitute people ever, great things can happen. I just think it's a very hopeful message in this very dark, you know, story. I agree. Um, we're actually going to stop a little bit early this week. Um, I know we didn't get to all the chapters that we wanted. Um, I think <laughs> these chapters were just so heavy and there was so much to talk about. We kind of took our time with it. So we may have, uh, some extra podcasts uh, coming around the bend. We're going to try and finish everything, you know, on time and on schedule. So we'll see how that all goes. Uh, and I'd like to say too, that there are a lot of very experienced, very accomplished people who are kind of joining our team here, you know, Lady Chi and Rena and Jules on the forum. And I'm hoping, you know, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that we can actually put some of these people, you know, to work and, you know, come up with some really fun things for the podcast and for the forum and, you know, really get into fan fiction a lot more than uh, we've been doing. You know, discussion and analysis is great, but I'm really into the behind the scenes, you know, parts of fanfic. And I'm hoping, uh, you know, these guys will, you know, pick up that baton and really carry it forward and do some really interesting things with it. You know, so I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but hopefully you'll be hearing from Chi and some of these other guys uh, pretty soon. Exactly. If you have um, a question you want to know about um, the writing process or the beta reading process or um, something like that, just give me an email at ladychi at potterfickweekly.com, and um, I'll do my best to answer your question, um, but uh, I I will definitely want to save it for 
um, a podcast that we've been kind of trying to figure out a format for. So um, I've been a, I've been an author for so long. I don't really know what non-authors don't want, want to know. So yeah. you know, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Yeah, we all have our own perspectives. You're the beta. I'm the reader. You know, other people. You know, are the are the authors of the fic who are interested in feedback and everyone has a different perspective, just like these characters do. So it's, it's definitely a fun process to get into because, you know, with the canon ending in a couple months, you know, you know, fanfic is the future of the Harry Potter universe. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how everything kind of reacts over the next few months. So we'll definitely be here. We'll be very active and, uh, come along for the ride. Stay tuned. Uh, so thank you, Lady G for joining me today, you know, for the eight hour podcast that would not die. Thank you for having me. And we hope to have you back soon. I'd like to thank Harry and the Potters for our theme music. Uh, I'd like to thank Leela Starsky and Danielle for our fan art. And um, I'd like to thank uh, Jen and Rena for doing their best to be part of this week's episode. that didn't work out. We'll hear from you next week. And I'd like to thank uh, Jen for being my friend, even though I'm about to release very embarrassing bloopers of her. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Uh, read ahead and we'll cover as much as we can. And have a great night, everybody. Bye. Kill it! Quick! I left you for like five minutes. I hate Kill it! I'm sorry. There's like a tarantula in our lamp. In your lamp? Well, it was on the wall, and James hit it, and oh, so cute! Oh my God, call an exterminator! <laughs> Don't get near me! Stop. I'm not going near it within like eight feet. Those Jen? things freaking jump. Jen? Yes, sorry. Say hi to the blooper reel. No. <laughs> no, this is not my fault. Why does this keep happening to me? <laughs> I don't understand. I never. Oh, right. It is humongous. I'm not even joking. Oh, I'm so grossed out. What if it was in our bed? <laughs> we are moving to Alaska. I'm sick of this crap. <laughs> oh James, what is that? Are you killing it with potpourri? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> no, I have to this is life or death here. Stop laughing, man. I can't. Get on the phone and call the tarantula people control. There's tarantula control? (laughs) He did not jump out. I didn't even notice it, Ryan. It could have been on my head. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. I'm just so glad we have... (laughs) If we don't record tonight, at least we're going to get a blooper reel out of this thing. (laughs) No, we are going to record. (laughs) This is... (laughs) 